One of my favorite uh, Christmas carols is a song we sang a couple of weeks ago. It's uh, O Come, O Come, Emmanuel. You may know it, I am sure. Um, but it is a song that is actually, the, the poem was written in the 8th century. And there are seven stanzas. If you look in your hymn book, it's page 175. You can see it there. There's only four stanzas because seven stanzas, that's a long song. But in each of those stanzas, the writer identifies, highlights one particular name of the Messiah from the Old Testament. Emmanuel, wisdom, great Lord of might, branch of Jesse's stem, key of David, bright and morning star, king of nations. And it's a song that is set in the first century before Christ comes, longing and waiting for the Messiah. So there's this heart that is pulling on all the promises of the Old Testament, basically saying, O come, O come, Emmanuel. Well, the reality is, friends, Jesus has come. And actually, one of the great themes of the book of John is the fact that Jesus has come. And he's come, uh, he, he's shown us in his gospel many facets of that and many ways in which Jesus has come. And as we are gathered here over these few weeks, our goal as we were opening God's Word is really not to exhaust all of those texts, but to bring a number of them to bear, to show that Jesus didn't just come to be a little baby. He came to do so much more. We began with he, the fact that He came as the Word to represent the Godhead full of grace and truth. He came last week to restore worship in spirit and in truth. And today, we want to see that Jesus came to save. Look with me at verse 17 of our text. For God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world, but in order that the world might be saved through him. Now, honestly, friends, I think this word saved has lost its vigor and its power in our contemporary culture, even in the church. There's almost a part of us, I think, that is a little hesitant even to use the word by saying, well, I was saved when I was 16 years old. But listen to the words of the Apostle Paul in 1 Timothy 1.15. The saying is trustworthy and deserving of full acceptance that Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners of whom I am the foremost. Now, what is it that we are saved from? We're going to say we're saved. <laughs> We've got to know what we're saved from. And I think R.C. Sproul does a good job of summarizing it in this statement. He says, the grand paradox or supreme irony of the Christian faith is that we are saved both by God and from God. Hear that. We're saved by God and from God. Why from God? Because we are guilty. Even our text says that we are already condemned and must face the wrath of God for our sins. But it is by God, through the death of Jesus Christ, His Son, that we are saved from his holy 
wrath. Jesus came to save those who would believe. That's my proposition this morning. It's a statement most of us know. In fact, it's a statement that's very familiar to us, but it's also a statement that is critical to our spiritual health and growth. Jesus came to save. If you're a believer today, Jesus came to save you. He didn't just come so you could slap him like a sticker on the suitcase of your life. He came to save you. And he comes to save those who will truly believe. The question is, do you truly believe? Well, he's a historical figure. He said a lot of nice things. But do you believe his coming was necessary? Not for other people but for you. Jesus came to save those who would believe. There's three parts of our time as we go through this passage today. We're going to look at the need for salvation. Secondly, the nature of salvation. And then what I'm calling the nurture of salvation. Let's jump in now here to the need for salvation. And immediately, John introduces us to the man Nicodemus, verse 1. Now, there was a man of the Pharisees named Nicodemus, a ruler of the Jews. John could more naturally have said there was a Pharisee. But he chose instead there was a man. And this is a clear indication that what Jesus is now sharing is a story, an encounter that he is having with someone who represents superficial belief. How do I know that? Look back in your Bible to the last things that were said in John chapter 2, beginning at verse 23. Now, when he was in Jerusalem at the Passover feast, many believed in his name when they saw the signs that he was doing. But Jesus, on his part, did not entrust himself to them because he knew all people and, indeed, and, and needed no one to bear witness about man, for he himself knew what was in man. He understands what superficial belief is. Belief isn't belief just simply in the signs. Those signs were always there to point to the truth about what was being said. People can be moved by all sorts of wonders and stuff like that. But what moves the heart to be saved is the very truth of the gospel of Jesus Christ. So these superficial men now are being represented by this one particular man, amen. But he also happens to be a Pharisee and a ruler of the Jews. As a Pharisee, he would be very respected in his culture and would be a person of high moral integrity. As a ruler of the Jews, he served in the Sanhedrin and therefore would have great political influence. Certainly, he was also a scholar in our text. Jesus confronts Nicodemus and says, look, you're a teacher of Israel. You should know these things. So here we have the introduction of the best choice to represent man, a man who comes with political power, moral excellence, contemporary scholarship. Boy, there's a resume for the President of the United States. Wouldn't that be nice? All as a part of his resume. 
Now, it's worth noting that in chapter 4, Jesus has another encounter with the woman at the well, we call her, an immoral, looked-down-upon woman. So in John 3, we have highly respected, highly moral, knowledgeable, influential man. Chapter 4, we have immoral, not respected woman. Too extreme. But note this. Religious man or immoral man, Jesus comes to save both and all who are in between. Can I just pause here and say this? We must be reminded of the truth that your neighbor who is highly moral needs the gospel. That your coworker who's very immoral and living a lifestyle of great immorality needs to be saved. But even the people that are in between that, your family member, your children. Don't allow your children simply to conform. And what I mean by that is don't settle for that. My children are great. They obey and they do what I tell them to do. That's nice. That doesn't mean that they're saved. What they need is the truth of the gospel born on their heart day after day with joy. Jesus Christ is Lord and Savior. It's the Holy Spirit who will do the change. Your work is the, the fodder God uses and the Holy Spirit works through. You can't save your children. And don't force them into baptism if they're not ready for it. It's a work of the Holy Spirit, and we're going to see that. But the reality here, friends, is this, is that all of humanity is in need of salvation. That's you and me and everyone we know. Secondly, we have Jesus. Now, what's interesting here, as he's represented here by John in the story, is Jesus who is the touched man. Let me explain what's going on. It says, this man came to Jesus by night and said to him, Rabbi, we know that you are a, were a teacher that come from God, for no one can do these signs that you do unless God is with him. Now, there's a lot of speculation as to why he came at night. It could be that he was, you know, he didn't want to be seen. It could be that he'd have more opportunity to talk. All those things are good. The significant thing isn't so much that he came by night, but that he came at all. He's coming, but he's also coming representing a group. We find that in some of the language here when he talks about we. Right? Rabbi, we know. And his words are, to Jesus are both respectful, but they're also somewhat patronizing. First of all, they're respectful in the, the fact that he comes and he gives them the title of rabbi and then attributes that he is a teacher that has come from God. That's a, a wonderful accolade. But what he says next is somewhat patronizing. We know, we, we, we grasp that God is at work in the things that you are doing. This is, this is not kind of a full statement of, hey, you know, we, I'm, I'm here to bow down before you. That's not what's going on at all. And there's this, this, this kind of language of we know both before our text in our text with Nicodemus, Jesus will say, well, we speak of what we know 
and bear witness to. And then when Jesus is with the woman at the well, he says, you worship what you do not know. We worship what we know for salvation is from the Jews. See, but to Nicodemus, Jesus, Jesus wasn't the Messiah. He wasn't the son of man. No, he was simply a teacher, a rabbi, a co-laborer who had been touched by God, a man touched by God. And friends, that is the way that often the religious people of this world see Jesus. They don't necessarily want to reject Jesus altogether. C.S. Lewis's famous summary is that Jesus is either Lord, liar, or a lunatic. And they would say, no, 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 no. We reject that. Instead, they will embrace Jesus on their terms. So, for example, the Muslims would say, he is a great prophet. Right? Hindus will say he's a great example who had wise, wise words for us to consider. Socialists and communists would say he was a great man, a great revolutionary. He fought for the people. Liberals would say he's a gentle lover of people who preached peace. See, friends, what, what happens with religious people, and people sometimes don't even know that they're religious, is they don't want to they don't want to simply reject completely Jesus, but they want, to, they want to pick and choose and create a Jesus of their own making. They, they like having him. And look, we're moving into another political year, and trust me, Jesus is going to come out. The Word of God is going to be quoted, but it's going to be distorted. People like to use Jesus. Now, there's just as much love for a distorted Jesus as there is hatred for him. You'll find that as you interact with people. So here's Jesus, a man who is touched by God, in, in, in act, interacting with a man who is religious. And then we have mankind now who is the needy man. See, if Jesus had been simply rabbi or teacher, what Nicodemus was saying would have been welcome accolades or words of support. But Jesus is quick to let tell Nicodemus that although he and others knew, the reality was that they didn't know what they were talking about. Do you ever have that when you're interacting with people and have an opportunity to even talk about the gospel, the things of, of, the, of the Lord? And people make statements and you're like, oh man, I don't want to insult them. <laughs> you ever have that kind of feeling? It's like they just don't, they think they know what they're talking about, so you have to kind of Back, kind of backpedal and say, all right, how do I frame this again so that they can understand that I'm correcting them? Notice what it says in verse 3. Jesus answered him, truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. This was nothing short of a reproof for Nicodemus and his represented friends. You're clueless, you're ignorant, you're blind. You think you know, but you don't. You can't unless you are born again. Friends, this is very exclusive language. Unless. Now, the expression born again has been so watered down in secular culture. It's another word that honestly, sometimes I'm afraid to use it because people have so many different ideas, right? I mean, the, the whole transcendental world has kind of grabbed that, oh, we're born again. It's all kind of mystical and flighty. But at the same time, we cannot, we cannot set it aside. We must not allow the detractors 
to be the tail that wags the dog, to be born again is a thoroughly biblical and important theological term. We must embrace it for what it is and define it if we have to. The truth is, friends, that even superficial believers consider themselves to be born again, but Jesus gets to the core of their unbelief. Spiritual insight is impossible, he's saying, unless spiritual transformation has taken place. Right? Spiritual insight is impossible unless spiritual insight or spiritual transformation has taken place. Or put it differently, superficial belief can only result in superficial understanding. If you can't see the kingdom, it's because you're blind to it. Conversely, if you want to see the kingdom of God, the supernatural realities, you must be born again. That's what 1 Corinthians 2.14 tells us. 1 Corinthians 2.14. The natural person does not accept the things of the Spirit of God, for they are folly to him, and he is not able to understand them because they are spiritually discerned. This is mankind's problem. If you're not born from above, if you're not regenerated by the Spirit, if you're not a child of God born by the will of God, you cannot, you will not understand spiritual realities. To be born again is not some superficial adjustment to life on your part. It is something far deeper and different than that. Listen to a couple of quotations. Here's J.I. Packer talking about what it means to be born again. It is not an alteration of or addition to the substance or faculties of the soul, but a drastic change wrought upon fallen uh, human nature, which brings man under the effective dominion of the Holy Spirit and makes him responsive to God, which previously he was not. You move from one place to another, and it's all because of the work of the Holy Spirit. And then J.C. Ryle, I think, helps us out also. He says, it is a thorough change of heart, will, and character. It is a resurrection. It is a new creation. It is a passing from death to life. It is the implanting in our dead hearts a new principle from above. So you can't just say, well, you know, I go to different, different places and different churches. I'll take Jesus and I'll take a little bit of this and a little bit of that. No, 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 this is exclusive. It's only Jesus, and it's only through Jesus. And unless you are born again, you cannot see the kingdom of God. Now, friends, this, this is important for us because we need to be reminded of where we came from. It's important to go back to a passage like this, a very familiar text of Scripture, and to be reminded that there was a need that God satisfied through Jesus Christ for us. Are you born again? Have you been saved? Or are you kind of walking through the motions of a religious culture, thinking that you're a believer? And I know people who have been in the church for a long time, who've gone through the motions, they've attended Sunday school class, they've sang worship songs, they've even led worship songs, and yet were not born again. Why? 
because all they were doing was being religious. What a horrible thing it would be to be in the context of a solid gospel church and go through the motions and then one day stand before the Lord and He says, depart from me, I never knew you. So friends, I challenge you and I just encourage you to to ask the hard questions of yourself. And then even as you look at your family and those that you're responsible for, don't settle for religiousness. Pray for a heart change. That they will own their own faith. So that's the, the need for salvation. We all need to be saved. Unless we're born again, we can't see the kingdom of God. Secondly, the nature of salvation. This is verses 4 through 8. How does Nicodemus respond to Jesus' compelling words? He said to him, how can a man be born when he is old? Can he enter a second time into his mother's womb or be, and be born? It's clear Nicodemus has no grasp of what Jesus is saying. Right? That's what's going on there. I mean, and think about this. I had, a, I had a friend in college. His name was Yuichi. He was from, from Japan, and he, he really came with little English knowledge. He was learning really fast, but he had this book that he kept all these idioms because he had no idea what they meant. And we would come back to my room and he'd say, what does this mean? And a couple of them that, that come to mind. It's raining cats and dogs. I mean, you try and explain that. Or how about it's, it's water under the bridge? Now, you and I were like, we get it. But well, here's a couple. Let's try these out. Here's a few from different places. Um, in Spain, they have an expression, to be cleaner than a frog's armpit. Use that in a sentence. See what happens. It means to be flat broke. How about this one? In Japan, they have the expression, it was like making tea with your navel. And the idea is it's laughable. Can you imagine trying to watch someone make tea with their navel, right? It's like, it's laughable. In Russia, I learned this a long time ago, they have the expression, I'm hanging noodles on your ears. Sounds like a fight in a, I don't know, in an Italian restaurant or something like that. I don't know. It means I'm pulling your leg. Oh, what does I'm pulling your leg mean? <laughs> right? So I'm saying there, there's language that we use that it's just like, that's what's happening here with Nicodemus. He has no clue what Jesus is saying. Makes no sense to him. It just didn't register. Now, notice what Jesus says in verse 7. He says, do not marvel that I said to you, you must be born again. In other words, you should know what this means. Then in verse 10, he says, are you the teacher of Israel, and yet you do not understand these things? He has the word. He has these promises. He has these descriptions of a coming Messiah, and yet he doesn't get it. So he was completely lacking in understanding, but he was also completely responsible and accountable. So friends, here's the lesson for all of us and for anyone whose religion includes and encompasses an appreciation for God's word. You have the word of God that makes the gospel clear. But you have allowed your religion to blind you 
so that you cannot see the truth of the gospel. You may be confused, but you are not without responsibility. In fact, you are very responsible. You are accountable because God has given you his truth. Not general revelation, but specific revelation. Now, friends, they can't see it. That's the point. That's why 1 Corinthians 2.14, again, we, we said it earlier, the natural person does not accept the things of the Spirit of God, for they are folly to him. They're foolishness to him. We must have the radical work of the Holy Spirit work in us, regenerate us, save us in order for us to understand what the Word is saying. And that's why Jesus says, unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. So what does it mean to be born again? Well, I want you to notice something in our text. Verse 5 is an expansion of verse 3. Verse 3, it says, unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom. And then Jesus says in verse 5, unless one is born of water and the Spirit, he cannot enter the kingdom, cannot see the kingdom, cannot enter the kingdom, unless he's born again or born of water and the Spirit. So these, there's an expansion going on here, and we want to kind of pick up on this. And to say that a lot of ink has been spilled trying to explain the interpretation of the expression born of water and the Spirit would be an understatement, but there are a few kind of common views. It's talking about natural childbirth. Um... Some would say it's talking about Christian baptism. Early church fathers uh, have, uh, uh, many of them would, would teach this. The Roman Catholic Church teaches this in particular. Some arms of the, the, the Lutheran Church teach this. But ultimately, it's what's called baptismal regeneration. In other words, it's the actual baptism that saves you. That's what they would say. Others would say it was John's baptism that was taking place before. But I, I would land on this last one, and that is talking about cleansing. That when the Holy Spirit comes and regenerates us, he cleanses us from our sin. We have a clean heart. So we have here the cleansing of salvation, the water and the Spirit. Jesus answered, truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born of water and the Spirit, he cannot enter the kingdom of God. Again, J.C. Ryle has some words here that I think are really, really helpful. Just pay attention to what he says. The expression born of water and of the Spirit is very peculiar, but it is not more peculiar than the parallel expression, he shall baptize you with the Holy Ghost and with fire. I believe that in each case, the, an element, that would be water or fire, is mentioned in connection with the Spirit in order to show us the nature of the Spirit's operation. Men must be baptized with the Holy Spirit purifying their hearts from the corruption as fire purifies metal and must be born of the Spirit, cleansing our hearts as water cleanses the body. Fire purifies, water cleanses. And friends, this is what the Old Testament taught. This is why, this is why Jesus is confronting Nicodemus. Ezekiel chapter 36 and verse 22 and following. Or verse 25, I should say. I will sprinkle clean water on you, God says, and you shall be clean from all your uncleanness and from all your idols. I will cleanse you. Cleansing language, cleansing language, right? 
and I will give you a new heart and a new spirit I will put within you. And I will remove the heart of stone from your flesh and give you a heart of flesh. And I will put my spirit within you and cause you to walk in my statutes and be careful to obey my rules. In the very next chapter, the bones are gathered. Life is brought to those bones. If you go to the New Testament, Paul tells us very similar things. And notice the, the kingdom and water language that he uses. 1 Corinthians chapter 6, verses 9 through 11. Or do you not know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? Get language. How do I get into the kingdom of God? Right? Do not be deceived, neither the sexually immoral, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor men who practice homosexuality, nor thieves, nor the greedy, nor drunkards, nor revilers, nor swindlers will inherit the kingdom of God. And such were some of you. In other words, these are the people that are saying, we're going to continue to do this. We don't care about the gospel. And such were some of you, but you were what? Washed. <laughs> You were sanctified. You were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ by the Spirit of God. Those three things, washed, sanctified, and justified, happened to you at the moment of salvation. When you are born again, you're washed, you're sanctified, you're justified. So if you're a child of God, you've been cleansed. You've been washed clean. In God's eyes, your sins are gone. Though your sins are as scarlet, they will become white as snow. And I think in our minds, we think, okay, that may have happened, but now there's little, little spots of scarlet in the snow. No! It's white as snow. We say, but I still sin. But the sin's paid for. Yeah, I know, but I still sin. Ah, it does hinder your relationship with the Lord. That's why you need to continue to repent and to confess so that your relationship with him can be restored. When you get saved again, they say, you, you are whiter than snow. This is your condition. If you're a child of God, you're whiter than snow. Friends, this is wonderful truth. So there's the cleansing of salvation. Secondly, there's the source of salvation, verse 6. That which is born of the flesh is flesh. That which is born of the Spirit is spirit. In other words, like produces like. Flesh here is not referring to our sinful nature. Flesh is here referring to our human nature. Human nature cannot produce spiritual life. Let me put it differently. Human effort on the part of humanity cannot gain spiritual life. It is fruitless. So, for example, you say, well, you know, I attend church. I wear Christian clothing and jewelry, you know, so people know that I'm a Christian, right? I read uh, or, or respect the Bible. I keep all the, the might well say, the rules of the Bible. I might even go on a pilgrimage somewhere. I visited the Holy Land. I celebrate Christian festivals. I do good, and I'm being kind. And a lot of those things are, are good. They have a place. I'm not saying they're all wrong. But those are not the things that get you into the kingdom. See, human flesh, human effort can't do it. It is a work of the Spirit of God. New life comes only from the supernatural work of the Holy Spirit. 
And so the source of our salvation is not human works. The source of our salvation is the Spirit of God who regenerates sinners by God's grace. Again, Paul in Titus 3 reminds us of this. He says, He saves us not because of works done by us in righteousness. It's all good things. But according to His mercy. And then you see the connection. By the washing of regeneration and renewal of the Holy Spirit, whom He poured out on us richly through Jesus Christ our Savior. See, again, this is the work of the Holy Spirit. This is the work in our hearts that has to take place. Then there's the effects of our salvation. It says here, the wind blows where it wishes and you hear its sound, but you do not know where it comes from or where it goes. So it is with everyone who was born of the Spirit. So Jesus now uses this this illustration of wind to describe the activity of the Holy Spirit regenerating the heart. See, we cannot understand the wind. You know what it's like, you know, you watch the weather. What's the weather going to be like? And the weatherman says, well, there's going to be a big storm coming in here. <laughs> it's going to hit right here. And sometimes they're right, and sometimes they're not. And you spend a lot of money boarding things up and getting, you know. You can't control those things. So you don't understand the wind. You can't control the wind, but you can see the effects of the wind as it blows or after it has blown. Wind is powerful, friends. So it is with the Holy Spirit. We cannot understand His activity. We cannot control His actions, but we can see the effects of His regenerating power on the life of a believer. Change passion. Change behavior. Change attitude. Change longings. Just like those dry bones of Ezekiel 37, when the Holy Spirit breathes, God's people come to life. This is the Holy Spirit at work in us. It's the nature of salvation. We are spirit-filled people controlled by the Holy Spirit, given life by the Holy Spirit. Jesus came to save. And that word is packed with meaning. And it's the reality of having the Holy Spirit at work in your life. But not only that, the need for salvation, the nature of salvation, but now what I'm calling the nurture of salvation. And by nurture, I simply mean to say this. How has God gone about drawing us to himself? And really drawing from what we have in our text. But I do want to go to that that key passage in John's gospel. I know Dennis mentioned it a couple of weeks ago, but it's good for us to go there because John is giving us the template of how to actually read through his gospel in these words. Notice what it says. Now, Jesus did many other signs. He did many other things. He did many other activities, right? In the presence of the disciples, which are not written in this book. So he's saying, I have selected from all sorts of things that Jesus did, but I'm giving you some evidence here. Verse 31, but these, these portions of evidence that I've just written here, Uh, These are written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing you may have life in his name. So anytime you go in the the Gospel of John, you're looking for evidence, you're looking for statements of belief, and you're looking for life. 
teaching about what it means to live the Christian life, right? See, all three of these things are going to be taking place. And I want to use that template here as we walk through the rest of these verses because what we have here is evidence you have belief and you're ultimately going to see life. And notice in verse 9, Nicodemus continues to show his ignorance by saying this. Nicodemus said to him, how can these things be? And Jesus responds with evidence, belief, and life. First of all, evidence. What evidence does Jesus point to? Well, there's a couple of things that we find in our text. First of all, in verse, verse 10, he confronts Nicodemus. Why? He confronts him because he says, look, you have evidence from Scripture. Are you the teacher of Israel, and yet you do not understand these things? You have the truth, Nicodemus, but you do not believe. And the reality is he had the truth, but he still needed God's help. You see, we need God's help to be able to understand the Bible. I've already kind of mentioned that before, but he's created us unlike any other creature to be revelation receivers. One of my favorite far sides has three frames to it, as I recall. In the first frame, you see a bunch of cows out in the field standing on two legs, you know, with a little glass of, of wine and some cheese in their hand, talking together like this, you know, having a wonderful time at their own little party, right? And then off in the distance, you see a cow that says, car coming! And then all of a sudden, the next frame, all the cows are either grazing on the ground, going, right? And then the third frame, the car's gone, and they're back up together, and they're drinking their, their wine and their, their cheese and all that kind of stuff. As if to say, cows are sophisticated. But hear this. You will never, ever drive down past Kettleman Ranch and see the cows all gathered together for a Bible study. They will not be gathered together singing praises to our God. They have no comprehension that there is even a thing that is a God. They do not know. They have not been given the capacity to be revelation receivers. That is something unique to us because we have been made in the image of God. Every time you pick up your Bible, think to yourself, God has breathed this out for me. And he's created me by virtue of having the Holy Spirit live in me to be able to receive the truth of God's word and how wonderful it is. Of course, this word reveals not only who God is and what he has done, but also how we are to live in this world. And let me remind you, of a very familiar passage, Luke 24, verse 25 through 27. Here's what Jesus says to his disciples after his resurrection as he meets these two men on the road to Emmaus. He says this, O foolish ones and slow of heart to believe all that the prophets have spoken, was it not necessary that the Christ should suffer these things and enter into his glory? And beginning with Moses and all the prophets, he interpreted to them, all the scriptures, in all the scriptures, the things concerning himself. He's saying, look, it's there, it's there, it's there, it's there, it's there, and it's pointing to me, it's pointing to my coming, it's pointing to my sacrifice. This is all the stuff 
that he does, evidence from the Scriptures. Secondly, there's evidence from what I'm calling eyewitness accounts. And of course, it's the eyewitness accounts of, of Jesus in particular, verse 11. Truly, truly, I say to you, we speak of what we know. Now, this, this is coming on the heels of Nicodemus saying, well, we know that you are come from God. And Jesus is responding, so, well, we know some things too. We've seen some things. We've seen some activity. We've been witnesses to what we have seen. But he says, but do you not receive our testimony? If I've told you earthly things and you would not believe, how can you believe if I tell you of heavenly things? So here is the truth, the evidence, the word of God, but it does you no good unless you receive it as true and believe it by faith. See, ultimately what Jesus is saying is, Nicodemus, you need help. My friends, that's a very humbling thing to hear, isn't it? When you think you know, and someone says, hmm, you actually need help, you either fight back, dig your heels in, or you say, hmm, all right, talk to me. Tell me what I don't know. And Jesus exposes his heart. My friends, we all needed help. We didn't come to Christ on our own merit. We didn't so, you know, search out the world and say, hmm, I think that Jesus Christ is the best way, simply through intellectual things. We may have been on a journey, but it's the Holy Spirit who was drawing you to Christ. He's the one that seeks us out. He's the one that breathes new life into you. We must have his work in our lives in order to be saved. But the evidence here, that the language that is used in this text is the fact that we are condemned. When? Already. And the end result of that is that we will what? It begins with the letter P. We will perish. It's not like perishing like food sitting in the cupboard and stuff like that. This is perishing that is the result of God pouring his wrath on us. This is no soft stuff. This isn't, well, I'm going to go to hell. I'm going to be there with my buddies. We're going to hang out. We're having a great time. No, you won't. That's your way of trying to feel good about the situation. But trust me, you're delusional. Now, Jesus isn't, isn't saying, well, I don't want to come and condemn you. Right? A lot of people view Christianity and, and Christ as being that way. He's, he's not saying, he's saying, look, you're already condemned. But you must be born again. You must believe. So here's the evidence, right? You're already condemned and will perish. But the Messiah, Jesus, has come to save sinners. Nicodemus should have known that as a teacher of Israel. Secondly, evidence. Then there's belief. And what's interesting here is that Moses, or Jesus uses now this, this illustration from 
the Old Testament scriptures about what took place in the wilderness. Let's read it, verse 14. And as Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, so must the Son of Man be lifted up, that whoever believes in him may have eternal life. Now, he says Son of Man, and that's, we can go into kind of a rabbit trail if we wanted to there, but just understand that the, the words, or expression Son of Man is one of Jesus' favorite titles for himself. And the emphasis of that title really talks about his mediatorial role between God and man. Now, Jesus tells us that the Son of Man will be lifted up just like Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness. This is referring to an event that we have recorded in Numbers chapter 21. Um, And I, I do want to read this just so that you can see the point of this. Numbers 21, beginning at verse 4. The people begin to complain, and they speak against God. Here's what it says. Why have you brought us up out of Egypt to die in the wilderness? For there is no food and no water, and we loathe this worthless food. And the Lord sent fiery serpents among the people, and they bit the people so that many people of Israel died. And the people came to Moses and said, we have sinned. For we have spoken against the Lord and against you. Pray to the Lord that he take away the serpents from us. So Moses prayed for the people. And the Lord said to Moses, make a fiery serpent and set it on a pole. And everyone who is bitten when he sees it shall live. When you look to that serpent on a pole, you will be healed. Now think about the medical symbol, if you would, please. The serpent around a pole. Just think about why would you have a serpent around a pole representing the medical world? I know it goes back to some, some Greek people, but it even goes further back to a text like this that says, hope is only found when you can look at this particular serpent. And he's saying, and this is what Jesus does. He is He's come to be lifted up. In other words, the way of salvation then is not for self-improvement or human striving. It comes simply by looking to Jesus as the sacrifice for your sin and by faith believing that his sacrifice has paid the debt that set you free, forgiven, and therefore given you life. In short, look to Jesus and live. That's what he's saying here. But there's this belief. Will you look to Jesus and believe? But not only that, believe and have eternal life. This is that that, well-known verse of Scripture. For God so loved the world that he gave his only son that whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. Again, believe. And then believe and be saved. Verse 17, for God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world, but in order that the world might be saved through him. See, again, this this idea of belief is throughout this passage. Friends, condemnation is man's natural consequence, but salvation is God's gracious reality. And it only comes through him, that is through the risen Christ. We must believe in Jesus 
who was lifted up as that sacrifice once for all. Evidence, belief, and then life. And of course, the life being talked about here is eternal life. It's a not-so-subtle theme that takes place here even in this text, and maybe we wouldn't necessarily detect it right away, but when you think about what Jesus is saying to a leader of the Jews, this is pretty profound. And we say this verse and what happens in this text over and over and over again, but understand what Jesus is doing here. The Messiah isn't coming to save Israel only. He's coming to save the world. And of course, there's a whosoever there. There's a subset of the world, those who believe. So it's not just Israel. The free offer of the gospel is broad enough to encompass the vilest sinner, yet narrow enough to exclude all who reject Christ. The issue isn't identity with Israel. The issue is identity with the Messiah. God gave his only son to give life to those who believe. God sent his son to save those who would believe. And the son of man descended from heaven to give eternal life to those who believe. And friends, John uses his expression eternal life 15 times in his gospel. This is the first place he does it. And it emphasizes the believer's participation in this union with Christ. Our eternal life is not simply a state. It's a reality. It's a relationship. It's a function. It's a joy. And Jesus defines eternal life in his high priestly prayer in John 17, 3. Here's what he says. And this is eternal life, that they know you, the only true God, and Jesus Christ whom you have sent. I like what John MacArthur says should be up on the screen, I think. He says, eternal life speaks not only of the promise of life in the age to come, but also of the quality of life that is characteristic of people who live in that age. It signifies quality as much as duration. It is not just living forever. Eternal life is being alive to the realm where God dwells. It is walking with the living God in an unending communion. So it's not just about the duration of things. It's about the quality. It's about the reality. It's about the the wonder and the joy of, of life, of walking with Christ. And it goes on, and it starts at the moment of your salvation and continues after you leave this world. And when you step from this world into heaven, guess what? You're still in union with Christ. And in fact, now things are clearer to you. You were seeing through a, a, a dark glass, but now things are made clear and that union continues and the joy of fellowship with Christ is ongoing. And I think when you get to heaven, you're not going to have all knowledge. You will increase in your knowledge, but you will still need to increase more and more in your understanding, and in your interaction with Christ. Now, friends, I want to bring this all down maybe to three statements here as we've gone through this. Number one, heed the warning. Heed the warning. This text, I know, John 3.16, one of the greatest gospel verses out there, 
but it is a text also of warning. The, the context here is a, is a context of warning. Nicodemus doesn't get it, and yet he is religious. To not believe, friends, is to reject Christ and to welcome God's wrath. That's the warning. To not believe is to remain condemned and to perish. So this is no laughing matter. It won't do to say, I don't believe that Jesus came to save, but I can respect him as a great prophet, as a great example, as a great man, as a great lover of people. No, unless you are born again, you cannot see or enter the kingdom of God. Jesus came to save those who would believe. Are you saved? And I probably don't ask that question enough in our church. (laughs) Are you a follower of Christ? Are you united with him? Is he united with you? Do you have the Holy Spirit living in you? Is there evidence that we can see that something has taken place in your life, that you have been saved? Don't play around with this question. Life and death, friends, is at stake. Heed the warning. Secondly, feel the love. (laughs) For God so loved the world. I mean, yes, warning, 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 but in the, in the, in the heart of our text is this wonderful truth. The heartbeat of God is to, to love those whom he would save. And if you're a child of God, you are the recipient of the wonderful, majestic love of God. We sang about that this morning. You sang about that this morning, sang well singing about it this morning. Why? Because to be loved by God is so undeserving. And yet we are the recipients of his favor, of his affection. God in his love saved us from his wrath by sending a son to die for us. What kind of love is that? Marvelous, infinite Matchless love freely bestowed on all who believe. I hear the words of love. I gaze upon the blood. I see the mighty sacrifice, and I have peace with God. Jesus, what a friend for sinners. Jesus, lover of my soul. Friends may fail me, foes assail me. He, my Savior, makes me whole. Hallelujah, what a Savior. Hallelujah, what a friend. Saving, helping, keeping, loving. He is with me to the end. This is the love that we receive. But friends, share the love. Share the love. I think maybe as a church, I'm saying generally speaking, not specifically about us, but I think we are influenced by it. I think generally we have been beaten into submission 
so that we don't share the love. And friends, I want to encourage you. If you've been the recipient of the love of God, why would you not want to share the love of God? I share a lot of things. Diets. I, I need some wisdom there. We share ways to, you know, make money. Oh, but friends, the most important thing is that you're born again. You want to see the kingdom? You want to enter the kingdom? Here's the love of God. But it, the love of God comes with a conditional unless. <laughs> Share the love. And especially during this Christmas season, have the opportunity just to, to point to Christ. Think of ways that just as you're walking your way, doing your things, that you can be a joy to other people and just proclaim the love of God. And third, rejoice in your salvation. Why? Let me just highlight for you just a number of things that come with being born again. You're no longer the object of God's wrath. Is that a good thing? <laughs> yeah, I hope so. You've been welcomed into God's family. Now, just think about this. If you've ever been with me on a mission trip or you've ever been around the world and decided, you know, I'm going to go into a church, and you'll walk into this church, and it's a like-minded church, your brothers and sisters in Christ is absolutely amazing. It's wonderful. You're part of this wonderful spiritual family, God's family, his universal church. You are united with Christ. It's not something that happened to you and now you kind of go off on your own. No, Christ is with you. The Holy Spirit is present with you. You are indwelt by the Holy Spirit. And he is at work in you, applying conviction and helping you remind, be reminded of things that you've learned about your walk with the Lord. You can understand the Word of God. Friends, that's a privilege. And rejoice over it. I mean, when, when you read through God's Word, you're like, man, oh, wait, I remember seeing something over here that was saying the same thing. And you start to connect the dots and the Word just becomes alive. You ever had that experience? It's like the Holy Spirit's like doing things there in that moment. This is what you have because you are born again. You're members of God's glorious but imperfect church. That's you. <laughs> That's me. It's glorious, but it's imperfect, but it's wonderful. You have a purpose, no matter what it is. God's created you with all skills and gifts and abilities. Sometimes we're able to do the things that we love. Sometimes we have to do the things that are available to us. Sometimes those things are God's purpose. He has you there for a reason. I remember back be between ministries, I worked at FedEx, got up at 2 o'clock in the morning, and put my uniform on, and went and hauled boxes for your Christmas celebration. And I met people. And God would put me in a 
container for like three hours with another person. And as you're working, you begin talking. What do you do? Well, I'm a pastor, but right now I don't have a church and waiting on the Lord. And they start asking more questions. And before long, you're having an opportunity to share the gospel. I would never have been able to share a gospel with that person except for the fact that I had been there. God has a purpose. Friends, God has a purpose for you. And I don't mean that in the kind of warm, fuzzy Christian purpose mentality. I'm saying where God is, where you are right now is God's purpose in the sense. He is working through you. Another one. You have wisdom, counsel, and perspective from Christ. Life is hard, friends. There are all sorts of challenges in this world. But because you're a child of God, because you're born again, he gives you wisdom. He gives you counsel. He gives you insight. He gives you people that can help you with that. You have a peace that passes all understanding. You and I, because we know the reality, we know how the story ends, so to speak. We know the truth of our identity in Christ and our existence with Christ, we have a peace. We should. We can. <laughs> it's all because we have been saved. You have a certain hope in life and death. As a pastor, I have the privilege sometimes of being with families in those times and those moments when people pass from death into life, from life into death. Yeah, that's better. Some are ugly. But if they're God's people, typically there's joy, there's sadness, but there's a confidence, there's a certainty, there's a hope, there's a reality that, that they have moved on, not to a better place, they've moved on to God's place to his place, to the place that we're all, if we're children of God, destined to go, destined to be. And friends, we could go on and on. And that's what we try and do every Sunday for, for God's children, to show you the wonders of your salvation. And to live for the Lord, because not only did Jesus save you, but he's given you his Holy Spirit to work in you. He's given you the word of God so that you can understand who he is, what he does, and what he wants you to do. Friends, Jesus came into this world to save those who would believe. Are you born again? Lord, help us. This is such a central truth. And it's a truth, Lord, that really is targeted at the heart of everyone who is present here, including myself. May we ask the question, Lord, are we being honest about our relationship with you? Have we been conforming to some kind of a Christian religious program? Or has the Holy Spirit truly grabbed a hold of our heart. As such, Lord, we are born again. And we have been saved from your wrath 
and granted new life in Christ. Lord, it's so foundational and essential, but Lord, it's good for us to be reminded of it. You came to save religious people, immoral people, and all that's in between. And so, Lord, even as we think about our own hearts, hearts of our children, hearts of our family members, the hearts of our neighbors, hearts of our co-workers, Lord, give us a fresh vision and vigor that you came into this world to even save them, to share the love of Christ and to to model the love of Christ and to, to, to declare it as we have opportunity. Help us, Lord, to be strengthened and encouraged by your word, Lord. We ask in your precious name, amen.